Blog Talk Radio. Friday, everybody. Welcome to the Michael Cutler Hour. I am your host, Michael Cutler. It is Friday night. It is February the 4th, 2022. Gosh, the calendar is flying, isn't it? And uh, I'm so happy that uh, you're here, happy to join you, Uh, happy to play that game of catch-up, considering all the lunacy that seems to transpire on a daily basis, uh, both here in my hometown of New York City uh, and across the United States. Everybody, I think, is aware of record levels of crime. Violence is off the charts. New York um, has gone back to the bad old days. In fact, I would argue that as bad as things were under Mayor Dinkins many years ago, things are actually worse now than they were then. Um, My son installed a ring doorbell, so we have cameras and We get alerts about crimes in the neighborhood, and it's a never-ending cavalcade of serious crimes in some of the best neighborhoods, so-called. You know, in law enforcement, we always said there's no such thing as a good neighborhood. Murders, rapes, robberies, uh, carjackings occur in all sorts of neighborhoods. And, in fact, when you think about it from the criminal's perspective, and that's really what we need to do, you don't go to a poor neighborhood to commit crime. The pickings are slim. You go to the most expensive neighborhoods because that's where the good stuff is. You know, the bank robber Willie Sutton said that he went to the banks. He robbed the banks because that's where the money is. But it is truly disconcerting to be getting constant alerts that there was a robbery or a stabbing or a shooting or a carjacking just blocks from where my family and I live. And I've lived in this neighborhood since I was a kid. It's never been like this. The the criminals, the sociopaths have been emboldened. And remarkably, all we hear about from Biden, all we hear about from the attorney general is gun control, gun control. You know, I know they're coming out with self-driving cars. Maybe that's a cure for the insanity that you witness when you're on the road. But so far, I haven't seen any self-shooting guns. Uh, I know when I was in Arizona, when I was in Texas, there was a really cute little bumper sticker, and it said that gun control means a good, firm, two-handed grip, gun control. Let's be honest. Guns should be taken off the street when they are found in the hands of criminals. And as a federal agent, remember, I spent half my 30 years on the drug task force. I've arrested fugitives, people wanted for murder in countries around the world, including uh, in England and in Israel and elsewhere. Immigration isn't about any specific race. That's the lie being told by the open borders immigration anarchist. Human nature is a universal. We all bleed red when we are injured. And every group, every race, every religion has the good, the bad, and the ugly. We did a small celebration every time we took guns out of the hands of drug dealers or thugs or whatever. Because every time you remove a gun from the street, you're thinking that, well, maybe you saved some lives. Maybe you saved somebody from being badly injured, crippled, or killed. 
So I agree. Get the guns out of the hands of the bad guys. But if you don't put the bad guys in jail when they're found with a gun, then they're just going to find another gun and go back out on the street. Now, supposedly, Alvin, Alvin Bragg, the Manhattan DA who's under fire for good reason, nothing to brag about, pardon the pun, finally has said, if you are caught with a gun or a facsimile of a gun and you use it in the commission of a crime, you're going to be charged with a felony. Okay. But again, where's the bail policies on that? It should be a felony. He actually had promulgated a ruling that if some guy walks into a store, think of this. Just imagine this. You're behind the counter. You're a customer in, in a store. Some guy comes in with a gun, shoves the gun in someone's face and says, give me your money or else. They were treating it as a misdemeanor. Let me repeat that. What this district attorney has been doing is that if some thug walked in to a 7-Eleven, walked into a bakery, walked into a jewelry store, whipped out a gun, shoved it in the face of the guy behind the counter, and said, give me what I want or else, as long as he didn't pull the trigger, that crime was being treated as a misdemeanor. Fortunately, it never happened to me. A couple times I was being followed, realized what was going on. Uh, as an agent, I had a firearm with me. I still have a carry permit. I was in the position to defend myself. But I know people, going back to when I went to college, who were robbed at gunpoint, they were never the same. Someone shoving a gun in your face with a shaky hand telling you they're going to kill you is as traumatic as it gets. I, I would put it on par and I don't want someone making an accusation of being, you know, thoughtless. To me, it's no different from a rape. You convince that victim that they are about to die, they're about to be crippled, they're about to have their brains splattered across the pavement. You're not the same after that. How could you be? I had a couple of friends that that happened to, and for years, you could see they were having problems walking down the street. Any noise, and they would jump through their skin. And this idiot district attorney said, oh, that's only a misdemeanor because they didn't pull the trigger. Finally, he said they're going to charge it as a felony. But again, what happens with bail? No one's addressing that issue. Now, you should know that as a federal agent, I've worked with many prosecutors. Prosecutors used to be part of our team. We worked hand in glove. For a federal agent, for a police officer, the prosecutor is their lawyer pursuing the case that that law enforcement officer puts together. We did strategy sessions together. We went to the U.S. attorney. We went to the district attorney. They got us into the grand jury so we could get indictments, so we could get warrants. Uh, they would go with us to the magistrate so we could get a search warrant or, or other court orders. We were part of the team. We worked together. I was contacted by a prosecutor in Chicago working for the state's attorney. An individual who came to the United States from Mariel Cuban during the boat lift, back during the Carter administration, lots of parallels. You know, they turned the entire coastline of Florida into a port of entry under wacky Jimmy Carter. <clears throat> so um, we had an individual who came during that era, and this was a few years before I retired, so this would have been in the late 90s. Um, and this guy was involved with a murder, running a drug gang in Chicago. He fled to New York to avoid law enforcement. Using my authority as an immigration agent, we got a warrant 
for the NYPD and our people and the DEA to do what we call a dynamic entry, to execute a search and arrest warrant at the location because we had an informant or the police had an informant who saw what was believed to be the murder weapon in possession of this individual. And so we used that authority that I had, illegal alien with a firearm, because even though he was in the United States, even though he'd been paroled into the United States, he still did not have legal status because he had a string of convictions. So using the authority that I had as an immigration agent, which is why immigration agents are so invaluable in so many cases, which is why now that they're ignoring immigration, blows my mind. If you're not willing to accept uh, the ability of immigration agents to further the prosecution of criminal aliens, then you are obstructing justice as far as I am concerned. And that's what I believe the Attorney General is doing. That's what this administration is doing. But we got a warrant, and we arrested this guy. And I worked closely with the state's attorney in Illinois, made many trips back and forth. I testified ultimately uh, at the sentencing or the pre-sentencing hearing. And the judge in the case said that it was my testimony detailing this guy's criminal history, going back to when he was a teenager, convinced the judge to sentence this guy to life without parole. He said, had it not been for my testimony, he would have gotten um, he would have gotten a life sentence, but with the possibility of parole. I spent two hours on the witness stand. When I got done, that was it. And it was funny because the defense attorney came up to me as I was walking off the witness stand. I was very surprised that he shook my hand and he said, you're the worst nightmare I ever confronted in a courtroom, Agent Cutler but I have to respect you for what you do. Now, that was the defense attorney. That was very gratifying because this is about keeping the community safe. And I have argued bail in many cases. Usually the agent doesn't argue bail. The prosecutor does. But who's more familiar with the defendant in a case than the case agent? And there were a number of federal prosecutors who would say, Mike, I need you to argue bail. I would go in and argue bail. Nobody got bail. So I'm speaking to you from the position of real-world experience, not conjecture or brain spasms, when I tell you that bail is only an issue of two considerations. Number one, risk of flight. Number two, danger to the community. And when you're dealing with an illegal alien who has multiple identities, that demonstrates an extreme risk of flight. Very simple. I remember in one case we caught a guy with over a million dollars in drug money that he was trying to send out of the country. He was a Colombian, and because of uh, what we did, he was remanded without bail. And I remember in summing up my argument before the federal magistrate, a woman who up until that point had never remanded anybody without bail because she was very strong on this notion of presumption of innocence, as I am, by the way, very strong on the idea of reasonable bail, and I agree with that, by the way. But the case was so compelling. The guy had been using four different multiple fake identities, lied about his status as a student in the United States. He stopped being a student years earlier, stopped attending school. So he even lied to the pretrial services. He was lying to everybody, and he had access, obviously, to lots of money. When I got done with providing all that evidence in court at the arraignment, I summed it up by saying, Your Honor, it is my belief that this individual is as amorphous as a puff of smoke and would be as difficult to recapture should he be let out of the bottle. The magistrate, I will never forget it, went back into chambers 
very disturbed by what I had told her. And after about half hour in chamber, she came out, lectured the entire court about presumption of innocence and reasonable bail. And I thought, well, this is going the wrong way. The prosecutor said, Mike, you know, you did your best. And then she surprised all of us and said, however, in this case, I believe the case agent is correct. I have no alternative but to remand the defendant without bail, period. He ultimately was found guilty of money laundering and structuring, was sentenced to serve seven years in jail, and then he was deported. That's how the system is supposed to work. I was very proud of what we did that day. The U.S. attorney was thrilled with how things turned out. Because this individual would have been yet another fugitive, never to be seen again, had we not been able to get our hooks into him and make him sit in that jail until he had the trial and until uh, he ultimately was found guilty of the crimes for which he was charged. That's what we're talking about, protecting America and protecting Americans. So when you have people talking about social justice and then saying because of social justice, We're going to take people who have committed violent crimes, who use firearms, and the Democrats are so concerned about guns, and turning people back out onto the street after they've done an armed robbery and saying, well, this is social justice. No, this is an act of national suicide, plain and simple. And if you allow somebody to get back out on the street enough times, Sooner or later, he or she will kill somebody or will seriously injure somebody or somebody's with an S. How is that social justice? If you look at the majority of victims of violent thugs who live within ethnic immigrant communities, it's the members of those ethnic immigrant communities who are most likely to be killed or injured. Same thing in the black communities and the Latino communities and the Russian communities and the Asian communities. Human nature is human nature. This isn't about race. We should never allow that fake argument to be raised without challenging it and countering it. This isn't about race. It's not about religion. No one stands up in court and says, oh, Your Honor, this guy has purple skin. We have to remand him. That's not what's happening here. We're simply saying that this person has demonstrated a propensity towards violence and is most likely to flee if he is not remanded into custody. This is catch and release all over again. They tried it with immigration, and it created a disaster. And then they said, well, we could do this to the entire criminal justice system. If you really want social justice, okay, that's cool. You don't start when somebody is 18 years old and has a bunch of arrests for violent crimes. We see kids, unfortunately, in some of these neighborhoods who start committing felonies and murders and all sorts of crimes when they're 12, 13 years old. Talk about career criminals. Yes, doing the work Americans won't do. Career criminal. Blows the mind. If you really want to change that dynamic, it has to start when a child is born. We should be doing everything in our power as a country, as a community, as a society to create the most the the most wholesome environment for our children, the poverty that's out there. Unless you've been in these neighborhoods, you have no idea what it's like. Again, I'm calling upon my experience 26 years out on the street as an agent in some of the worst neighborhoods and some of the best neighborhoods. And I've been in houses where you walk through the hallway and you see feces all over the hallway. 
There's no heat in the wintertime. There are bullet holes in the wall. It looks like a war zone because it is a war zone. And when you have kids being raised in that environment, coming from broken families, with few, if any, role models of people who have been successful by working within the system, that child is starting life with two strikes against him or her. Maybe what we should be doing is teaching in schools, instead of hatred of America and critical race theory, maybe a class that they should be giving in junior high and then again in high school is the responsibilities that go with parenthood. If you're going to have a child, that child is a lifelong commitment. Maybe that's really where the emphasis needs to be. Having a child is hard work, and it's a major commitment. It's a major responsibility. It's the most rewarding job you could possibly have, at least as far as I'm concerned. I have four children, and each one is a blessing. They are the center of my universe. But I can tell you that I've been in neighborhoods where parents had no clue where their children were. I remember interviewing a couple, as you've seen in the movies, to see if people were really living together. And this woman, she was the American, married to an illegal alien. And in order to try to figure out if they were living together, you know, you separate them, you ask them questions and so forth. I asked her how many kids she had, and she told me, gosh, this was so many years ago, back in the 70s. But I remember she had, I believe, four children, the youngest of whom was less than two years old. I said, well, where do they sleep? She said, well, this last week they didn't sleep in our house, in my house. I said, well, where did they sleep? And she was giving me the rundown because each child was shuttled off to a neighbor or a relative or who knows. And I remember when I asked, what about the two-year-old? She said, well, I left him with my sister but my sister might be traveling down to Puerto Rico, so I'm not sure where my two-year-old is, but I'm sure I'll see him by the weekend, and this was on a Monday. And I said, you're going to see him by the weekend? You don't know where your two-year-old is? She said, no. I said, doesn't that worry you? And she looked at me with this blank look and said, why? Let that sink in. I mean, what happens to a child that gets shunted around like that There's no sense of stability or self-worth. God only knows if this child was being fed properly or maybe being abused because child abuse is a huge problem. And abused children grow up to be abusive parents and sociopaths. So this woman had four kids, hadn't seen them in a week, and that was just hunky-dory, super-duper cool with her because by next weekend I'll probably see them. And she had no clue where they were. I don't know where those kids are today, even if they're alive or if they're in jail, but this was back in the 70s. Well, we have this kind of lunacy passing for parenting, and then you wonder why we have a problem. This shouldn't be a great mystery to anybody. We need, as a society, to make kids from day one understand, number one, that they're valued, but that, number two, if they're going to have children at some point, that they owe those children everything. And, 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 and that relationship doesn't end. My, all of my four kids are adults now, and, and I'm still close with them, and I'm still concerned about them because they're my children. And sometimes people don't realize that not everyone lives the way that we do or has the values that we have. I had a partner who used to have a wonderful expression. 
we'd be executing a search warrant. And I can tell you, having executed so many search warrants, that there's no such thing as normal. I'm convinced that everybody is twisted. It's only a matter of to what degree and what direction. But sometimes we'd be executing a warrant or we'd be interrogating some, some sociopathic individual, and my, my partner would look at me and he'd say, boy, Mike, I don't know what the color of this guy, the sky is in this guy's world, but sure as hell it's not blue. In fact, my, my partner just called me up, one of my partners, but this guy who did this just called me up today, and we were commiserating over how old we are because he's about to turn 80, which blows my mind because we both went to Border Patrol Academy when we were in our 20s. Back then, everybody who hired on with the INS went down to Texas to the Border Patrol Academy. The time goes quickly, too quickly. But when you see things from the street level, it becomes a very different story. It's not what you see on TV, and it's not what you're reading in the paper. We experienced it first class, up close and in person, firsthand rather. So we're in a situation where we're being told that social justice means turning criminals loose. That's not social justice. That's a prescription for a disaster. And you start to ask yourself, why would anybody who's capable of fogging a mirror. Why would anybody who's been to college, anybody who's studied the law, prosecutors, supposed to be on the side of law and order, why would a prosecutor think that social justice means no bail? Let them loose. Now, I understand that bail can cause people who have no money to stay in jail where if they had some money, they wouldn't be in jail. We're talking now about maybe somebody who who drives um, without a license or he was speeding or whatever. Okay, fine. I'm willing to take a shot at that and say, okay, given those circumstances, you know, maybe we shouldn't be holding him in jail. And, and I think that we do incarcerate too many people. Of all the democracies in the world, my understanding is that we have the highest percentage of incarceration. We need to change that equation. We also need to do more with our jails. We call jails very often correctional facilities, but they correct very little, unfortunately. So maybe we need to, you know, reconsider what goes on in a jail. What do we do to prepare people that are in jail so that they can come out and be productive members of society? Emphasize education. Uh, I've seen something that's truly amazing, uh, parolees and pit bulls, where people who have been arrested work with, with dogs, and, and, and it really seems to help or work with horses. A lot of the people who are criminals, I can tell you, having interviewed, I can't tell you how many, never really had a, a warm, loving human connection. And that damages us. People are supposed to have that connection. And when we don't get that connection, when we don't get that nurturing experience, we're damaged. We need to look at the entire system. And I'm willing to do that. I will agree with that. If you're going to put someone in jail for 15 years, at some point that person's coming out. Will he or she come out better or worse? It's important for society as well as for them. So perhaps we ought to be looking at all sorts of programs that we could use to get a better outcome and a lower recidivism rate when someone is incarcerated. But there's got to be consequences for violations of laws or laws don't matter. As a parent, and I'm sure if you've had children, you know the story. You don't say to your child, I'm going to get you ice cream if you don't do your homework. It doesn't work that way. 
get your homework done, then I'll take you out to pizza and ice cream. Oh, okay, Dad. That works. There's got to be positive reinforcement. That works. But you have children that are raised in an environment of chaos and violence, and we have problems as a consequence. That has to be addressed, but not when the person is 18 years old, but 18 hours old. Understand what we're talking about. So then why are there prosecutors saying we're going to turn criminals loose? I wrote an article back in August of 2020, and if you look at the website for my blog talk show tonight, you'll see the link to the article. And I remember looking at, the, at a speech that John F. Kennedy made, and he was one of my favorite presidents. In fact, it was Kennedy who motivated me to become involved in public speaking because I thought he was the most effective public speaker I'd ever heard. And Kennedy gave a speech back in, um, well, 60 years ago, 61 years ago. It was an amazing speech. And it was about the threats that we were facing because of insurgents around the world trying to quash emerging democracies. And he referred to those who were trying to destroy these democracies that were rising up as the adversaries of freedom. And suddenly, I looked at what he said back then, and I'm looking at the situation that's here. And back in 2020, we had the CHOP zone in Washington State and other such areas, and I saw so many parallels occurring right here within the borders of our own country that replicated what Kennedy warned about around the world as communist dictatorships, China, Russia, Cuba, were imposing their will on these democracies that were trying to get started, and he warned about it. And I said, my gosh, the tactics of those countries in the third world strongly parallel what we're witnessing in our own country right now. Let me give you an example of what we're talking about. In fact, let me read part of this, and please read my article. You'll see the excerpts from Kennedy's speech, but better yet, you can click on the link that I provide so you can read the entire speech in its entirety. And if my memory serves me correctly, there's actually a link so you could listen to Kennedy deliver the speech, and it's well worth listening to. Uh, if you've never heard John F. Kennedy deliver a speech, uh, listen to his ability as a communicator. It's really important. doesn't mean I agreed with everything he did or said. It doesn't work that way. I don't even always agree with me because over time I, I may change a position, not because I'm a waffle, but because as you learn more, you see things from a new perspective. I try to learn at least one new thing every single day. I find it difficult to go to sleep if I haven't discovered a new truth or a new fact on any given day. That's, that's been my goal since I was a kid. I used to live in the library. I was one of those nerds, you know. Um, so anyway, without further ado, here's what Kennedy said. These are extraordinary times, and we face an extraordinary challenge. Our strength as well as our convictions have imposed upon this nation the role of leader in freedom's cause. Boy, if we only saw where we are today. We are the leader in freedom's cause. No role in history could be more difficult or more important. We stand for freedom. That is our conviction for ourselves. That is our only commitment to others. No friend, no neutral, no adversary should think otherwise. We are not against any man or any nation or any system except as it is hostile to freedom. 
nor am I here to present a new military doctrine bearing any one name or aimed at any one area. I am here to promote the freedom doctrine. The great battleground of the defense and expansion of freedom today is the whole southern half of the globe, Asia, Latin America, Africa, and the Middle East, the lands of the rising peoples. Their revolution is the greatest in human history. They seek an end to injustice, tyranny, and exploitation. More than an end, they seek a beginning. And theirs is a revolution which we would support regardless of the Cold War and regardless of which political or economic route they should choose to freedom. For the adversaries of freedom did not create the revolution, nor did they create the conditions which compel it, but they are seeking to ride the crest of its wave to capture it for themselves. Now listen to this, folks. Yet their aggression is more often concealed than open. They have fired no missiles, and their troops are seldom seen. They send arms, agitators, and technicians, and propaganda to every troubled area. But where fighting is required, it is usually done by others, by guerrillas striking at night, by assassins striking alone, assassins who've taken the lives of 4,000 civil officers in the last 12 months in Vietnam alone, by subversives and saboteurs and insurrectionists who in some cases control whole areas inside of independent nations. Think of the chop zone. And I would argue that the criminals being turned loose on the streets, killing police officers around the United States, tragically on an almost daily basis. We just lost two of America's of New York's finest who were kids. One was 22, one was 27. Parallels what he was talking about in Vietnam, doesn't it? Not insurgents, but the criminals being cut loose by radical prosecutors who don't give a damn about the Constitution, don't give a damn about their oaths of office, and certainly don't give a damn about the people that will die because of what they're doing and not doing. And then he goes on, and this was included, but wasn't delivered in the remarks, but it was part of his prepared statement. So let me read this, and then I have a little bit more to read for you. I hope you're finding this interesting. They, meaning the adversaries of freedom, they possess a powerful intercontinental striking force, large forces for conventional war are well-trained underground in nearly every country, underground. Again, I come back to the people in this country, whether they're politicians or whoever they are, who are seeking to undermine our freedom. Think about Silicon Valley. Think about the politicians that are coming up with mandates for masks and vaccines and telling people what they can and can't do. And if you dare step out of your house and you haven't been vaccinated, we're going to arrest you, charge you with trespass. They're charging kids, by the way, folks, with trespassing in one school if they're not wearing masks. Trespass. But they won't, as a party, arrest illegal aliens who trespass on America. The parallels and the hypocrisy is mind-boggling. So, again, Kennedy said, they possess a powerful intercontinental striking force, large forces for, in, for conventional war, a well-trained underground in nearly every country, the power to conscript talent and manpower for any purpose, the capacity for quick decisions, now listen to this, a closed society without dissent. A society without dissent. Where are we today with what Silicon Valley has been doing and censoring everything that we say and write? a closed society without dissent, or free information. Think of that. 
and long experience in the techniques of violence and subversion. Look at the murder rate. Look at the violent crime rate. Look at the intimidation that this creates, the mayhem this creates in our cities across America. Going back to Kennedy's text, they make the most of their scientific successes, their economic progress, and their pose, and their pose as a foe of colonialism and a friend of popular revolution. They prey on unstable or unpopular governments, unsealed or unknown boundaries, orders, ladies and gentlemen, right? Unfilled hopes, convulsive change, massive poverty, illiteracy, unrest, and frustration. Is that not what we're getting in the poverty-stricken neighborhoods, primarily where America's minorities live? Lousy education, food issues, housing issues. He's describing what is happening in America's inner cities, isn't he, here, without meaning it. He was describing other countries, but that's where we are today within inner cities, isn't it? And then Kennedy went on and said, with these formidable weapons, the adversaries of freedom plan to consolidate their territory, to exploit, to control, and finally destroy the hopes of the world's newest nations. They have ambition to do it before the end of this decade. It is a contest of will and purpose as well as force and violence a battle for the minds and souls as well as the lives and territory, and in that contest, we cannot stand aside. We stand as we always stood from our earliest beginnings for the independence and equality of all nations. And today, what do we hear? Equity, not equality. Think about that, folks. He went on and said, this nation was born of revolution and raised in freedom, and we do not intend to leave an open road for despotism. There is no single... There is no single simple policy which meets this challenge. Experience has taught us that no one nation has the power or the wisdom to solve all the problems of the world or manage its revolutionary tides, that extending our commitments does not always increase our security, that any initiative carries with it the risk of a temporary defeat, that nuclear weapons cannot prevent subversion, that no free people can be kept free without will and energy of their own. That is us, folks, today and that no two nations, the situations are exactly alike. And he ended it by talking about the efforts being made by China and other uh, adversaries of freedom. This new request is for additional radio and television to Latin America and Southeast Asia. These tools are particularly effective and essential in cities and villages of those great continents as a means of reaching millions of uncertain people to tell them of our interest in their fight for freedom. In Latin America, we are proposing to increase our Spanish and Portuguese broadcasts to a total of 154 hours a week compared to 42 hours today, none of which is in Portuguese, the language of about one-third of the people of South America. The Soviets, Red China, and satellites already broadcast into Latin America more than 134 hours a week in both Spanish and Portuguese. Communist China alone does more public information broadcasting in our own hemisphere than we do. Moreover, powerful propaganda broadcasts from Havana are now heard throughout Latin America, encouraging new revolutions in several countries. So think about that. Kennedy warned about people being kept from getting the truth, being stifled. Look at the headlines. Look at where we are between Facebook and Twitter, the broadcast media, the mainstream media. Crisis that Kennedy saw happening in the Southern Hemisphere 
is now playing out within the borders of our very own country. That's my belief. It is my belief that a number of these crazies who are turning criminals loose know damn well that this isn't about compassion, know damn well that this is not about social justice. I believe they see this as an instrument of subversion. For all the talk about the insurrection on January the 6th, the real insurrection is happening within our own borders by the radical left. It's amazing that while talking about insurrection, we don't even hear any you know, reporting on what happened when the mobs tried to overrun the White House and injured almost 100 or maybe more than 100 federal officers at the White House trying to prevent that, the White House from being overrun by the lunatics. It seems as though the radical left is very quick to accuse everyone else of what they themselves are doing, if you want to talk about insurrection. Just how I see things, I would urge you to to read the article and share it with your friends and neighbors. It's amazing that you have the Attorney General saying we're going to go after human trafficking. We're going to go after uh, these people, and we're going to have the FBI do it, but he doesn't talk about immigration, so why not? And he makes the claim that there's a distinct difference between human trafficking and human smuggling. And there is. And I've made this point myself. And an alien who goes to a smuggler and says, here's $5,000, get me into the United States and over to New York or Chicago or Minnesota, wherever. That guy is not a victim of human trafficking. That guy is a co-conspirator. Um, to be slightly off color, it's like the guy that goes to the brothel and pays for services uh, certainly is not a victim of, of the sex trade, okay? Um, that's the same sort of thing. People that go to the smuggler are not victims of human trafficking, but nevertheless, when aliens enter the country without inspection or enter with fake documents, they're violating the immigration laws. So why then wouldn't the attorney general say, hey, Let's get immigration agents involved. Let's get the Border Patrol involved. Let's get ICE involved. Because this administration is hell-bent literally on erasing America's borders and ignoring the immigration laws in direct violation of the Constitution of the United States. You know, we're always hearing, oh, my God, what Donald Trump did was unconstitutional. Really? How's that? So I recommend you go to Article 4, Section 4 of the United States Constitution, Article 4, Section 4, that says that each state is to be guaranteed a Republican form of government and to be protected from invasion or domestic violence. I'm paraphrasing, but you you have the the, the nugget, the gist of what that section's about. Article 4, Section 4. And if what we are witnessing does not constitute an invasion, then I want to know what an invasion looks like. Now, it's remarkable Because the New York Post recently reported that a woman who was born in the United States um, and was a a leader in ISIS was brought back to the United States to stand trial. Now, what's interesting about this, let me see if I can bring this up. Bear with me one moment. I apologize. So, the New York Post published an article January 29th, five days ago. Kansas mom charged with leading an all-female ISIS battalion in Syria. 
So they were happy to say that she's American, and we have an American terrorist, and Americans are terrorists, according to this administration. But she was married to a, a, an ISIS fighter who I believe was an alien. It's kind of hard to figure out who exactly she married when. But she was married several times. Her first husband was killed uh, in action fighting as a terrorist in the Middle East. So when he, I'm going to imagine that he came here, married her, and, and, and convinced her to join them in his quest to destroy the United States. But what's remarkable in the, in the article is that she um, made it clear that she was going to train people to come to the United States to blow up schools and parking garages and, and do other things to kill Americans. She wanted to carry out attacks on college campuses. And, in fact, what the article said in that role, she trained more than 100 women to fire assault rifles, throw grenades, drive explosive-laden vehicles, and use suicide belts so they could fight uh, in Raqqa. So understand how dangerous this woman is. But what's so amazing was, according to the New York Post article, and I'm reading the, the, the sentence, in 2014, her name was Fluke Ekwin, and she had multiple identities. By the way, if you look at those people that are coming across the border from Mexico, the garbage is piled as high as you could imagine, and in the garbage are identity documents and airplane tickets so that people coming into the country could lie about where they were from and who they are. Now, some of them may just be coming to work, and they don't want to go back to their home country, so they're going to make a false claim to being Mexican, perhaps. God only knows. But I guarantee you that if there are fugitives, and I'm sure there are, or gang members, and I'm sure there are, or terrorists, and I'm sure they are, they don't want their identities known to our authorities. Understand why they're covering their tracks that way. Very dangerous. So this woman, this terrorist, who was a trainer and a battalion commander, they said that Fluke Ekron discussed a plan to dress like infidels and drop off an explosive pack, backpack at an unnamed U.S. college to kill students. FBI Special Agent David Robbins alleged in the criminal affidavit. She told a witness, quote, now listen to this, folks. Listen carefully. She told a witness not to worry about the logistics because she knew how to get into the United States from Mexico, Robbins wrote. Think about that. So she looked at that Mexican border and said, I'll get all of you in. These are foreign nationals that she was training. I'll get you all into the United States so you can blow up a college campus so that you can blow up other facilities and kill lots of Americans. Her family has not surprisingly disowned her. She is sociopathic and hell-bent on killing as many Americans as possible. And how is she going to bring the people in? Through the Mexican border. You think she's the only one that's figured this out? The dangers that we face from that wide-open border are incalculable. Now, add to that the fact that our special forces just took out the leader of ISIS a couple days ago. Do you not think that they would love nothing better than to strike inside our country to avenge the death of their leader? And instead of securing our borders, instead of reinforcing everything to protect us, the Biden administration is leaving us wide open to record levels of drugs, record levels of illegal aliens, record levels of people with dangerous diseases, and the potential for terrorists and weapons to come across the border. How does this protect us? How does this not violate the Constitution of the United States? 
This is insanity. What we are witnessing is an act of national suicide. I don't know any other way of describing it. And if you really want to look at what's behind crime, I can tell you that there is a clear nexus between narcotics and crime, whether it's the transnational gangs. And again, immigration agents are instrumental in going after transnational gangs. Back around 1991, 92, I began investigating MS-13. And they were all violating immigration laws, which was a powerful weapon to use against them. Do you know that if an alien lies on a visa application to come here, that's a 10-year felony? But if the lying is being done in conjunction with narcotics, it becomes a 20-year felony. And if they lie on an application in conjunction with terrorism, it's 25 years in jail. That is a unique statute that immigration agents can pursue. Illegal alien with a firearm carries 10 years in jail. Illegal alien with ammunition, 10 years in jail. But you need an immigration agent who can attest to the fact that the person's an illegal alien. And the Biden administration says, no, we don't want to do that. In fact, the Biden administration just released a known terrorist. I'm sorry, I don't have the document in front of me. But he was arrested crossing the border with his family. The FBI interviewed him, and they walked out of the interview and they told Homeland Security, this guy is a terrorist. He was living in Venezuela, but he came from the Middle East. He is dangerous to national security. Do not release him, because he had applied for political asylum. Do not release him. And we know that many terrorists have applied for asylum. Uh, Faisal Shahzad, the Times Square bomber. We can go down the whole list. And then they looked to get U.S. citizenship as an embedding tactic. And they said, don't release this guy. He's a terrorist. Alejandro Mayorkas released him. He's out there someplace. God knows where he is or what he's doing. I hope we don't hear a loud kaboom. How do you justify ignoring the FBI and releasing someone that they said is a terrorist? The FBI described this guy as a, as a dangerous terrorist, and the Department of Homeland Surrender released him. He's out there with his family. Why? How do you justify this? How do you justify this? And why aren't we seeing news conferences every day from the Republicans? Because I suspect that there are many Republicans that are thrilled to have a wide open border because it's exactly what the U.S. Chamber of Commerce wants. It's exactly what the American Immigration Lawyers Association wants. It's exactly what the banks want. Drugs flow in, money flows out, and when the money flows out, the banks and money wire services, the remitters, get a piece of the action. They're the silent partner. They have great commercials on warning about cigarette smoking. When was the last time you saw a good commercial warning about drugs? Even though last year it's estimated that over 100,000 people died of drug overdoses. That doesn't include the people who were killed by individuals committing violent crimes to get the money to feed their drug habit. Or the transnational gangs who commit crimes in the United States and their activities are funded by the drugs. And by the way, drug money is also going back to Iran and China China is the source country for fentanyl, which is so lethal that a couple of grains of this stuff can kill an individual. You have a couple of pounds, you could be looking at a couple of million fatalities. And where is it coming from? China. And if that doesn't constitute chemical warfare, I don't know what does. And what are we doing to keep this garbage out of our country? Upkis. Nada, as in not a damn thing. Why? I want someone to explain it. Where is the benefit to the average American that drugs are flowing into this country at record levels, killing record numbers of Americans, especially children, 
violence through the roof. And Kamala Harris, oh, we're going to get to the root cause of why these people are coming here. The root cause? Okay, I'll tell you the root cause. Some of them are coming to work, which is illegal and creates a problem for American workers. I thought the Democrats were concerned about American jobs and wages. Bernie Sanders in 2006 stood with the AFL-CIO and said that anybody who intentionally hires an illegal alien should be prosecuted because they're destroying jobs and wages of Americans. He said it's an anti-American act. What happened to them? Okay, so some are coming to work. Some are coming because they're fugitives. They're wanted for serious crimes, including murder, rape, robbery, drugs, and so forth, around the world. Again, not conjecture. I arrested quite a few of those nitwits. Wanted for murder, wanted for robbery, wanted for narcotics trafficking. I got a police medal from the government of Japan for working with them to send one of their citizens back to stand trial in, in Japan because she was smuggling narcotics from the United States into Tokyo. So she wasn't here for a job. The job she was doing was crime. You have people coming here because they're part of transnational gangs. You have people who are coming here because they're international terrorists and they're looking to embed themselves as sleeper agents. There's your root causes, not just one. And they're coming from all over the world, not just Mexico, not just Latin America, but from countries that sponsor terrorism and from other countries across the planet. Joe Biden has essentially fired the starter's pistol for aspiring illegal aliens from all over the world. And for those individuals, the border of the United States is the finish line because once they get to that border, Joe Biden gives them a warm hug and a plane ticket so they can go anywhere their heart desires. And we have no idea who they are or what danger or damage they might pose to America or Americans. I don't even know where to begin. I've testified for something like, I believe it was a total of 17 hearings in the House and Senate. I was also asked to provide depositions that became part of the congressional record of other hearings. And the focus was on national security and public safety, immigration and border security. What was the point to those hearings? Why did I waste my time? I provided testimony to the 9-11 Commission. Why did they waste their time? It's almost as though the Biden administration looked at the 9-11 Commission report and said, okay, what does it say we're not supposed to do? We'll do it. What does it say we have to do? We won't do it. So basically, the 9-11 Commission report has become a how-to for Joe Biden, but he twisted inside out and upside down doing what we were warned not to do, and not doing what we were told we should do. And where's the mainstream media? God forbid, if buildings start blowing up and people start dying, what are they going to say then? Whoops, we made a mistake. You can't unring the bell. You can't bring the dead back to life. And I want you to think of this number, 19. It's a small number, isn't it? 19. You know what 19 is? 19 is the number of terrorists who on September 11, 2001, killed more people than we lost to the entire Japanese fleet at Pearl Harbor on December 7, 1941. And the death count from 9-11 continues as more people, many of them first responders who ran towards the threat, not away from it, are dying because they were exposed to toxins when the towers collapsed. 
I read somewhere, I don't have the accurate numbers, but it is believed that more people have died since 9-11 than died on 9-11. Billions of dollars have been allocated to treat people suffering from 9-11 related illness, all because of 19 individuals. 19, and we've allowed into our country millions, and we have no idea who they are or why they're here or where they are. How in the world can you talk about national security <clears throat> under the current circumstances? And meanwhile, Chris Ray, the head of the FBI, said that Chinese espionage is so pervasive that every day they open up two new investigations into Chinese espionage. I want you to think about this one. Opening up an investigation means absolutely upkiss. It means nothing, nada. You know why? Because depending on the resources that you can allocate to the investigation determines whether or not the investigation will be successful or how quickly you will be able to conduct the investigation. Remember, DOJ just opened up an entire division a couple of weeks ago that focused on radical American terrorists. Radical American terrorists, probably parents who are very unhappy about critical race theory. They have been branded as the terrorists. Well, you have X number agents, X number of dollars. You have certain amounts of resources. How do you plan to do all of that and still go after Chinese espionage and international terrorism? It's not doable. It sounds good to say we're on top of this, we're opening investigations, but as a case agent, I might have carried 10 cases. So how much time do you think I devoted to each case? 15 minutes a week or an hour a week? What does that do? It means nothing to talk about cases open. I want to know how many cases are being actively pursued with adequate resources, and I'm sure the answer to that one is going to be bupkis also. Nothing, nada. We are overwhelmed. And every day we get more overwhelmed because we're flooding our country with people who have no right to be here and who pose a threat to our very survival. And that's not a statement of xenophobia. I have no problem with a legal immigration system where people are properly screened and where we don't bring in workers who displace American workers. That's what this is about. The American immigration laws, if you had to sum them up, are designed to protect public safety, public health, national security, and the jobs and wages of American workers, period. Go to Title VIII, United States Code, Section 1182, and it lists the categories of aliens who are not to be permitted into the United States. It's aliens who have dangerous communicable diseases, think COVID, boys and girls, severe mental illness, sex offenses, that sort of thing, aliens who are criminals, terrorists, spies, human rights violators, fugitives from justice, human traffickers, drug smugglers, Nazi war criminals, and then we get the people that might become a public charge or if they work with displaced American workers. Do you not think that a country, a sovereign country, not only has the right but the absolute imperative to prevent the entry of those categories of aliens that I've just enumerated? And, of course, Immediately, Pelosi and the other liars would say, oh, that's anti-immigrant. The border wall is a wall of hate. And I've said it before. I'm going to say it again. The border wall was not designed to stop anybody from entering, just to make sure they all go through a port of entry so we can screen them. Who in their right mind want people to come into the country without screening? 
The difference between an immigrant and an illegal alien is comparable to the difference between a house guest and a burglar. Everyone likes company unless we're tied up doing something. But we certainly don't want people coming through our bedroom window at 3 o'clock in the morning, and that's exactly what we're talking about. We as Americans have got to start to have conversations with our neighbors. We need to reach out to these politicians. And please don't think, oh, my God, thank God the Republicans are going to probably beat the Democrats. And, And where do they stand on the issue? You have Republicans looking to provide every possible benefit to illegal aliens also. It was the Republicans through Ronald Reagan who gave us that massive amnesty who took away the visa requirement, gave us the visa waiver program, even gave us the diversity visa, the visa lottery. I hear so many conservatives screaming about the visa lottery. Well, you can thank Ronald Reagan, and you can thank George Herbert Walker Bush. Reagan started it. Bush signed it into law. It's both parties. The R or D after their name means nothing. You have got to speak to these individuals as individuals, and if they're not willing to talk to them, don't vote for them. I don't care if they come from the Hopping Kangaroo Party. I'd like to know why you don't hear politicians talking about what their plans are and how it's going to help the average American. All that you hear now is when these politicians run for office, it's about winning elections and getting as much campaign money as possible. And that's how the articles almost always start out. Charlie Smith is running for the Senate, and he's amassed a war chest of $3.4 million. Imagine if law enforcement did that. It's called bribery. You'd go to jail for committing a felony. But in politics, it's called a political campaign contribution. How is that not a bribe? America is teetering. We are at crossroads. And I really believe that the arguments that we can use are compelling, but don't attack your neighbor who disagrees. They have been misled, and people that are misled are embarrassed very often. No one likes to appear foolish. The term bleeding heart liberal has got to be stricken from the vocabulary. And no, I'm not talking about canceling language or anything else, but it's a terrible expression. Compassion, folks, is really important. I just want to know why it doesn't apply to Americans. Why are we compassionate about illegal alien children, but we don't seem to give a damn about American kids? Charity is supposed to begin at home. I hope you'll read that article for Front Page Magazine and share it with as many people as you can. I hope that you will share the podcast of this program with as many as you can and ask them in turn to do the very same. Share it. Pass it along. Become part of what I call my bucket brigade of truth. It is truly vital that we speak to our neighbors because the facts, the law, common sense, and morality are all on our side. Our neighbors who disagree with us are actually our allies. All we need to do is win them over by using the facts, common sense, and a rational, calm, measured approach. The facts speak for themselves, or as John Adams said so eloquently, facts are stubborn things. Remember, folks, democracy is not a spectator sport. I hope you all have a good weekend. Uh, If you're stuck in the snow, I hope uh, things improve for you quickly. Stay warm, stay safe, and I'll see you again right here next week on the Michael Cutler Hour. Have a wonderful weekend, everybody. Be well.